in general, the, the, the sense of strategic uncertainty is on the rise in Southeast Asia. Uh, this is, a, this is a, you know, a part of the world that has defined itself as hedging China and the U.S. or balancing China and the U.S. Or, 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 or maybe just put it more generically, for which both China and the U.S. are very important to Southeast Asia, again, both in an economic and a security sense. That was the voice of Adam Schwarz, founder and CEO of Asia Group Advisors, a strategy and investment advisory firm operating across Southeast Asia. Adam and his firm have made it their business to understand the economic and geopolitical complexities that inhabit this part of the world. In this conversation, we unpack some of the challenges the region faces from the coronavirus outbreak to the rising influence of its neighbor to the north, China. We covered a lot of ground in this discussion. I started out by asking Adam to reflect on how less developed markets in the region were equipped to handle the COVID-19 crisis. Adam Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us from Washington, D.C. We're here to talk a little bit about Southeast Asia, China's soft power. But first and foremost, let's discuss the information vacuum we're living in right now. Businesses in Asia are struggling to understand what's happening on the ground with respect to the spread of COVID-19. China, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore led the wave, but now many of the less developed markets in the region are in the throes of it. Thanks, Steve, and, and uh, great to be um, back on your podcast. Um, listen, I think you know the businesses are struggling because the data is well. I mean, there's there's data. The question, just the question is, is 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 how believable is it? I think there's a general sense that across the region that the numbers that governments are putting out on uh, infections um, and, and probably COVID-related deaths are are on the low side. The real question is is by how much or by what degree the numbers themselves are are, are actually remarkably low um, you know, there's less than i think a report at this stage it's about 1500 um deaths covid related deaths and across asean which is you know 600 million people um and and probably around only 50,000 uh, infections reported so you know generally I mean, relative to um uh, Europe or or the U.S. These are these are these are very very low numbers, and people you know are, are reasonably sure they're 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 too low. Um, now the question is, are they are they sort of percentage wise low, or are these you know ten twenty times too low? And I think people are generally of the view at this stage anyway that it's more the former that they're not that it, you know it'd be hard to hide numbers just because people are, are, are tracking you know um uh cemeteries and, and whether people are getting buried and they're doing surveys at hospitals and that kind of thing but nevertheless just like it's happening in elsewhere in the world there's there's a there's a lot of asymptomatic cases and there's a lot of clusters whether it's in um you know d- dense neighborhoods or, or or elderly care centers where 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 because the testing is still very low the testing uh, volume is still very low that governments you know i don't think necessarily the governments are necessarily um uh deliberately hiding data i just don't think they they have it um but the, but having said all that there are you know there are countries that are coming out of the cycle faster than others um you know in in southeast asia vietnam and and Vietnam has been very successful. Vietnam has recorded, you know, zero uh, COVID-related uh, deaths. Do you believe that, Adam? Is that is that is that believable? 
You know, it, I mean, again, with the same the same caveats as I mentioned earlier. I, I, you know, in the sense that if you're not if you're not doing widespread testing, then then you don't know for sure. But but generally, yeah, most 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 analysts and most experts and most health officials think that you know give Vietnam very very high marks for acting quickly and uh, effectively. Um, and you know, I mean, uh, we have offices around the region, and you know, our our office in, in Hanoi was the, was the first one to open. Our, our office in Thailand is just just opening up uh, this week. So there are, you know, in terms of people being able to, to go back to work in the office. Um, so you know, there are there are countries in ASEAN that are that, like I said, there are coming out of it, and, and you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that business is picking up dramatically or, or new investment is starting. But there are, there, there at least in some countries, they're starting to, you know, some, some return to kind of normal um, uh, activity at, at, a, at a, you know, people-to-people level. You know, Adam, that somehow strikes me as strange because if you think about a, a, a wealthy city-state like Singapore where social distancing is possible, um, you could probably lock down pretty easily and stave off uh, additional infections. But then if you look at a, a country like Indonesia with a population of 270 million, Jakarta alone, 10 million people, densely populated, living on top of each other, slums, um, you know, a situation ripe for any virus, uh, you would suspect by any stretch of the imagination that that's where the biggest impact would occur yet not at least not yet well uh, true um, you know, I'm not a I'm not an epidemiologist and you know there's been a lot a lot written on that very question as to as to why that is um, you know there are again there are people tracking you know how many people are getting buried in the big cemeteries and in, in Jakarta and that kind of stuff and while they're up they're not up a tremendous amount. They're not up, you know. So in other words, I don't think there's a sense that people are hiding data. It's more a sense of they don't they don't have the data. Um, but but equally, there does there does not seem to be nearly as yet uh, as widespread uh, infection rates as people were worried about and, and and are indeed still worried about. And I think, again, like as is true for the for the rest of the world. Uh, we're we're in the relatively early stages of this crisis, and it's not going to be a linear uh, route out of it. Uh, and there will be there'll be setbacks, and there'll be secondary spikes, um, and no doubt that will be the case in uh, in ASEAN as well. But it but at this stage, um, you know, for example, even even in Bali, which people were expecting was going to be particularly hard hit just because of the very high uh, rates, you know, high numbers of tourists. Um, there's been there's been actually remarkably few cases reported cases of of infections and you know, the, the public health reporting in Bali is, is is reasonably good. So again, I mean we're 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 at a we're at an early stage here, but but so far whether it's you know um, it's 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 the weather or it's you know some have speculated that because there's there's already high rates of infections for other kinds of disease like tuberculosis, uh, et cetera, that, that Indonesians are, are not, the infection rates aren't as high as, as one might expect. Again, I think there's still, we're still on the theory, the theory stage and, and nobody really has, I think, that good uh, explanations for why this is. Well, let's play this forward and think about the recovery, uh, whatever that might look like, V-shaped, U-shaped, W-shaped, whatever. Um, what's the perception of Southeast Asia or Asia in general for foreign investors. 
Are they, it was already a difficult idea. Um, you know, any developing market, you know, takes the brave and the bold. But now there's this additional risk associated with not only the occurrence, but the possibility of a resurgence of COVID-19. Will that prevent overseas investors from looking seriously at Southeast Asia in the next 12 to 18 months? Well, I th- y- yes, is the short answer. But I, but I think, you know, the longer answer is that I think investors are going to be generally cautious everywhere. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the the rates of infection in terms of uh, proportionally are are much much higher in Europe and and the and the United States uh, relative to all all Asian countries. Um, again, the the data is is not perfect, and but you know it's the it's a fairly it's a fairly stark difference based on data that we have today. Um, so I think investors just generally are gonna, are gonna be nervous. Now, obviously that, that's gonna differ a little bit by uh, sector. Uh, you know, we, there's, there's a lot more, some, some sectors actually have, have done quite well, everything to do with digital or, you know, cloud-based uh, logistics, e-commerce. I mean, people are at home, they're buying. You know, there's been some interesting you know, subsector trends developing. People are not, you know, they're not spending middle class and upper middle class people are not spending money in in restaurants anymore. But you know, there's been a huge increase, you know, buying organic or or, or better better food, you know, for, for to be delivered online, that kind of thing. Um, so 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 there'll be sectoral differences. There'll be country differences, and and of course the origin of where the investment is coming from will will matter. So generally. I think um, you know Asian Asian investors are a little bit more familiar. Uh, they're they're the bigger investors in Southeast Asia. The you know China, Japan, South Korea, et cetera, are already the larger investors in most most countries in Southeast Asia, and they're also more familiar. They're bigger communities, um, so you'd expect that those would be um, more likely to be the ones first back in. And what we'll probably also see is potentially anyway is is uh, more intra-ASEAN investment uh, uh, as sort of countries in the region start to come out of of the you know coming out of sort of COVID recovery. Um, we'll be looking looking in the region, and there may be opportunities there for ASEAN investors that um, weren't there before because they were being crowded out by by global MNCs who may be a little bit later coming back into the game. Well, that's an interesting, as a sub-region, uh, let's talk about Southeast Asia. How important is Southeast Asia to the U.S. and China? Well, it's important to, to both, uh, again, of both economic um, and, and security or, 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 or geostrategic uh, terms. Um, you know, these are, you know, it's, it's, it's a sizable uh, territory. It's, uh, uh, you know, 600 billion uh, people, you know, somewhere between 800 billion, a trillion, you know, collective GDP. It's, you know, it's a larger GDP than the Eastern seaboard of, of China. You know, it's, you know, I mean, it doesn't always operate as a region. So some, so those numbers can be a little bit misleading, but, uh, potentially, uh, you know, the, t- the 10 countries of, of the you know, association of members of the association of Southeast Asian nations is a very considerable, um, economic, uh, entity. And, and as, as you look across the the globe, um, in terms of clusters of emerging markets, or South Asia, or the Middle East, or Central America, South America, uh, and 
most of Africa. You know, I think a lot of investors would look at Southeast Asia as um, the, the the highest growth prospects and the one that is 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 managing this this COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, rel- relatively well. And so again, it should, from an investment point of view, and again, we're getting ahead of the story because all these countries are, as they should be, very focused on managing the the pandemic uh, and, and managing the, the immediate economic fallout from the pandemic. But as investors look a little bit further down the road, I, you know, I think there's a general sense that Southeast Asia might, uh, relative to other groups of emerging markets, uh, relatively benefit. Yeah, I also see, though, under the cloud of COVID-19, a bit of a power play by China, uh, whether in the South China Sea or rounding up uh, pro-democracy leaders in Hong Kong, uh, you know, harassing uh, Malaysian uh, oil organizations. You, You see a number of things going on that Perhaps and, and, and the question I have for you is: Is this just China being China, or are they using uh, the 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 blinder of the coronavirus pandemic to you know exert power in ways that they otherwise would not have? So that's also also a very good question, and I, I you know there's a lot of a lot of discussion about that across ASEAN capitals. I mean, I think in general the 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 sense of strategic uncertainty is on the rise in Southeast Asia. Um, this is a, this is a you know part of the world that has defined itself as hedging China and the U.S. or balancing China and the U.S. or or or, or maybe just put it more generically for which both China and the U.S. are very important to Southeast Asia. Again, both in an economic and a security sense. Um, the, you know, strategic uncertainty has been on the rise uh, pretty much since, um, you know, the, tr- the Trump administration took over in the U.S. just from r- pulling out of the TPP, uh, which came as a big shock. But more, but more generally, the, you know, the, the, the Trump administration's walking away from multilateralism, uh, which uh, Southeast Asia looks to the multilateral trading order and the and multilateral institutions, which Southeast Asia and, and most emerging markets look to to kind of protect to protect those trade flows. The weakening of all of that as and then the the kind of the move from strategic cooperation to strategic competition between the U.S. and China, which is itself taking on an increasingly hard edge, is just generally raising concerns. And, and frankly, I think around Southeast Asia, there's concerns um, on both sides with the U.S. and the China. The ones who, that you mentioned are, are clearly front and center in terms of what ASEAN is worried about in China. Um, now, I, I think the the data that we have isn't really yet s- proving the case that China is, as some are accusing it of, or kind of taking advantage of this pandemic to kind of increase its sphere of influence or, or imposing its influence on Southeast Asia. So the example that you just gave, which are all good ones, but, uh, you know, um, as you know, as you just mentioned, China's rammed a Vietnamese fishing boat uh, earlier in April. Um, but of course, it rammed a Philippine fishing boat last year pre-crisis, and it's, it's, it is harassing um, Petronas, the national company of Malaysia, uh, a contracted vessel exploring for oil yeah. near the edge of its economic zone uh, off of Borneo. But of course, it's been doing that to Philippine and Vietnamese. Um, uh, oil explorers as well for a number of years. So they, they show not, no bias. They'll ram anybody. Is what you're saying? Well, it, it, it sort of seems that way. Now, I, I do think the 
the Hong Kong example is is one where I think everyone is is keeping an eye on. I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. The rounding up of the democracy activists, including sort of very well known names like Martin Lee and Jimmy Lai, um, and and you know the the kind of what's becoming an increasingly frequent trip by one of China's two aircraft carriers, uh, you know, up up and around Taiwan. Is beginning to is, is also certainly beginning to 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 raise eyebrows and, and, and concern. So uh, that's all that's all sort of again. I mean, I think to be to be fair, the countries that are are mainly focused at home right now again as they should be. Um, but there are you know the, the foreign policy elites and analysts are are worried about. Uh, both China and 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 you know frankly and and the U.S. behavior as as well. Uh, you know I think among other things the last thing that Southeast Asia wants to get dragged into is sort of the the blame game and getting recruited into a U.S. effort to to blame China. Um, for, you know for the when China's made many mistakes in particularly early stages of this crisis, but it's not. It's not likely to be seen by by ASEAN um, countries that it's in their interest to sort of publicly um, jump on that bandwagon. You know, let's flip this around a little bit, Adam, because we're we're talking about uh, you know U.S. interests in Southeast Asia, China's interests in Southeast Asia. It makes it sound like it's a pawn in some grand game, but Southeast Asia is coming into its own. You know, what's their perspective? What are they looking for? And and what are the the uh, you know the the preferences preferences they may have with regard to building relationships with China versus the U.S.? What are the, what is it that Southeast Asia wants from these relationships? Well, like most, like most nations, they want um, they want all the good and none of the bad. Um, so, you know, they want they want access to markets. They they want they don't want to lose sovereignty. Uh, they they want they don't want to lose any sense of independence or freedom of action. Um, and so that's why the balance that they have long had and aspired to. Uh, between China and the U.S. is such an Im- important. I mean, China is is of course the northern neighbor to Southeast Asia. It's it's not going anywhere. It's, all of ASEAN has 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 to deal with it, and will continue to have to deal with it. The U.S. has played a very important role in in Southeast Asia's progress and and, and rise and prosperity over uh, and and security over the last fifty years. But it it is it is a long. It's much further away than China and. In the last three or four years, it's seeming it's there's a sense that it is still further away because there's generally a sense in ASEAN that the U.S. is less engaged in Southeast Asia than the U.S. used to be, um, and that's that itself has caused a lot of um, angst uh, across the region and, and efforts by some to try to make sure or try to induce the U.S. to sort of stay engaged. Um, and there's 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 clearly some effort and elements of that by the U.S. and it's into Pacific strategy and um, but it's but it's playing it's clearly well withdrawing from the TPP was was a huge own goal I think in the in the eyes of many Southeast Asians and and the U.S. has been is in a sense trying to catch up from that but it's through various you know the, the Asian edge and the build act and 
very and the, the new development finance corporation is is but it's it is it, it is still in catch-up mode to where china it is and which is now the largest trading partner of virtually every um, southeast asian country it's the largest provider of new foreign investment every year to almost every and of course the belt and road initiative uh, despite its many and often are <laughs> commented on flaws has brought a you know a sizable amount of of long-term infrastructure financing into a region that has a very large deficit of 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 a you know long-term financing supply so that's kind of the situation prior to uh the pandemic and now we're you know now we're waiting to see how how we're going to come out of it and whether that um that balance that that ASEAN has 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 always wanted and has largely been able to achieve between the U.S. and China, whether that's still going to be possible, that's still going to be a viable strategy um, in, in a post-COVID world. Yeah, let's talk a, a little bit about supply chains. I mean, you, you alluded to the TPP and, and uh, attempts to diversify supply chains away from China in order to sidestep to some degree uh, tariffs that were being imposed and, and, and also other series of just more fallback plans and uh, fail-safe is safes uh, to some degree. Uh, that continues apace, and that strengthens Southeast Asia's hand, particularly in places like Vietnam, Malaysia, even Indonesia to some degree. How do you see that playing out going forward? Will it accelerate or will it keep pace? It's a it's a very important question and it's really a top of mind question for um, many of the governments of Southeast Asia. And so it really all I think there's no doubt that there's going to be a reordering of global supply chains. Um, I think what the pandemic has shown is, is you know, the very clear vulnerabilities of an over-dependence on a single country, in this case, China. And so there will be pressures to build more resiliency and uh, higher inventories and kind of get away from the very, very lean, just-in-time ordering um, approach that, that uh, many global embassies have been following. Um, now, the question is, is does that how, you know, what what are the drivers of that process? I mean, as, as you know, global global supply chains have been had been shortening anyway. Um, first, because of technology and, and robotics and AI, and the ability to um, uh, use technology to to negate the higher labor costs in developed markets. So you you had people already making some stuff closer to their market, and then because of the U.S.-China trade war, that, that's kind of accelerated that process. Now the question is, um, there's going to be diversification. The question is, are, is, that going to be an, is that going to be largely an economically driven process um, or is it going to be a political one? And I think if it's, an, if it's the former, then Southeast Asia actually probably stands to be a beneficiary of that process because a lot of the diversification of factories and of supply chains um, that are now still quite heavily uh, uh, located in, in China, um, a, a bunch of that will go to Southeast Asia. Um, if it's more political, that is to say, if Japan or the U.S. you know start start giving uh, large uh, incentives or subsidies or or mandates to their companies to start making um, uh, move more production 
back to their home countries. Um, and then and then we'll get into a discussion about what you know what gets defined as an essential good that falls under that mandate. But as as is the more the more political the process that comes, I think the more nervous Southeast Asia will feel that it may get cut out as opposed to, to, to benefit from that diversification. You know, Adam, you also raised this idea of robotics and, uh, and, and AI and, and everything else. This is actually something that's been coming up in my conversations where um, if these supply chains and manufacturing bases shift out of China, um, typically, and when they were initially set up, it was for the low labor costs. Well, um, now in the COVID era, um, could it be that when they build new manufacturing centers and inventory and warehouses and supply chains, they will become more dependent on robotics and less dependent on people. And therefore, the economic benefits that they might have seen, you know, 10, 15 years ago, now won't be the case in some of these Southeast Asia markets. What do you think? Listen, I, I think I think there's some there's there's that's partly true. Um, I think that's partly true of the supply chain and the manufacturing that if it is forced to do so, going back to their, like in this case, home country of its US or developed markets generally, it's likely to do so um, through with with a lot more technology and robotics. And so the, so the production might move back to developed markets. It's not clear that that's gonna create a lot of new jobs uh, and that'll create its own political dynamic. I think, you know, in, in terms of the you know, developing markets, like like most of Southeast Southeast Asia, um, you know, some of them are already moving up the electronics uh, value chain already. I mean, obviously, Singapore is, is quite advanced already, but you know, there's, there's significant um, uh, high, you know, high tech uh, industries in the electronics field in, in, in Malaysia and Thailand, um, to some extent, in the Vietnam and the Philippines as well, so I think there's now there's there's not going to be the, the the supply of labor at that sort of higher knowledge end of the value chain if there's a massive quick move uh, out of China, uh, but there's cer- there's certainly capacity to take on some of that in the short term, uh, and of course there's still a lot of production that is also more mid level and, and some that's that's labor intensive as well, which would likely go to the more labor, you know, the countries that 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 have uh, larger uh, labor forces like the Philippines and, and Indonesia. COVID aside, how bullish are you on Southeast Asia in the next three to five years? I think in general, I, I, I'm personally pretty bullish. I think there's a couple of, you know, partly, partly because we're a couple of reasons that we've talked about already um, so far, which is that the, the governments have shown themselves to be reasonably competent and capable in, in managing uh, this, the, 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 this virus. Um, again, it's early days and we'll see where we get but you know based on what we know today relative to other parts of this world um, southeast asia and frankly asia generally has shown itself to have relatively speaking uh, handled handled this virus uh, quite well um, from from a more specific southeast asia point of view it i think it it, it ought to be a primary beneficiary of supply chain diversification. I think the the, the caveats are are really what what's going to happen um, with among the big global boy. Like for example, what's going to happen in the U.S. China relationship? How uh, 
how hard an edge is that going to is that going to take on in the in the six months between now and the and the U.S. presidential elections? Um, you know, there's already a lot of um, the blame game and finger pointing going on. Um, that that has the potential of you know raising uncertainty uh, levels, uh, not just in those two countries, but but everywhere in the world. Um, you know, there's another question: is so how quickly is the U.S. going to to um, recover from the pandemic. I mean, it's still U.S. accounts for 15% of global GDP. It's a very important market, an export market for, for all of Southeast Asian countries. So the the, the, the pace um, at which the U.S. recovers is, is also an important variable um, for Southeast Asians, uh, return to economic vitality as well. But I think, in, you know, just to, to, you know, to summarize, I think in, in economic terms, if we just look at it from an economic prism, Southeast Asia, I think, is positioned to do uh, relatively well. Uh, when I say relative, I mean relative to other clusters of emerging markets around the world over the next three to five years. I think the bigger uncertainties really are, are political um, and, uh, and geopolitical. Adam, as always, we thank you for your time. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. That was my conversation with Adam Schwarz, CEO of Singapore-based advisory firm Asia Group Advisors. Our conversation reminded me of how Southeast Asia has weathered its fair share of colonial and post-colonial flack. In order to come to grips with this fact, it's important to take a quick trip back in time. The Southeast Asia of today is not the Southeast Asia of yesteryear. For generations, the spice trade defined commerce. Europeans conned on in the 16th century, and throughout the 17th century, the region was divided up through a series of unequal treaties. The post-World War II era ushered in a wave of independence movements, but even then the governments of Southeast Asia were divided along ideological lines. Into China became the staging ground for American and Russian aggression. The Vietnam War, well, that served as a bloody reminder that post-colonialism was alive and well. The past 50 years have given Southeast Asia room to grow. The results have been mixed. While Singapore has emerged as one of the most sophisticated city-states on the planet, other countries like Laos have wallowed in stagnation. Perhaps because of these major developmental differences, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, has struggled to build consensus. The 10 member nations represent a collective GDP of $2.3 trillion. That's relatively small compared to an American GDP of $21 trillion, but not unimportant. Combined, it's equivalent to the world's seventh largest economy. For listeners familiar with the region, my apologies for the brief history lesson. But for others who may not be aware, the point is this. Now could be Southeast Asia's Phoenix moment. Member nations are a collection of relatively stable and growth-oriented markets that may be about to reap the benefits of a geopolitical pissing match between the U.S. and China. As my conversation with Adam reveals, investors are swarming, supply chains are shifting, and confidence is mounting. The subregion's ability to weather and manage the COVID-19 crisis will either make or break the rate of that ascendance. Much is yet to be seen. Politically, the U.S. has distanced itself from the region for all the wrong reasons and at precisely the wrong time. U.S. investors and multinationals operating in this part of the world aren't happy about that. 
Layer in China's ambitions and the fact that it's now the region's largest trading partner and the possibility for one of two scenarios emerges. Under a best-case scenario, ASEAN finds its footing, doubles down on its efforts to economically integrate, and sets an example to the world in areas of sustainability and innovation. A less attractive scenario would find China exerting power to replace U.S. influence while leaders in the region dicker, only to find themselves once again beholden to a northern neighbor with a historical fondness for tribute. Then there's the matter of transparency, and this brings us back to the start of my conversation with Adam. How or why COVID-19 reported cases are to date so low throughout ASEAN countries is a bit of a mystery. As any epidemiologist will tell you, a virus thrives in densely populated and immune-compromised communities. Asia's slums, of which there are many, come to mind. Maybe not in the high-rise cosmopolitan centers in Singapore, Hong Kong, or Tokyo, but certainly in places like India, Cambodia, Indonesia, and the Philippines. According to the World Bank, Asia is home to 563 million urban slum dwellers, or 64% of the world's slum population. Urban slums pose the greatest concern, where people live on top of each other and sanitation is virtually non-existent. In Manila, places with names like Tondo, Happyland, and Aroma are home to millions of poor and destitute. They rank among the world's most densely populated areas. Conditions are shocking. The same goes for Tambora in Jakarta, where an estimated 250,000 people are packed into a five and a half square mile radius. So here's my big concern. If COVID-19 can sweep through the orderly, albeit crowded, worker dorms in well-appointed Singapore as it has with nearly a thousand cases a day for the last three weeks, then what's to prevent the virus from wreaking havoc in large-scale slums, where most assuredly no one will come to the rescue? Could it be that for reasons that defy logic, Asia's urban poor have been spared the disease? Or is it possible that governments in less developed countries are simply under-reporting cases, knowing full well that they can neither test nor treat the infected? This is what I mean by transparency. If Southeast Asia has a shot at growing its global reputation, any move to cover up the truth with respect to the spread of the disease is sure to tarnish the subregion's image. For investors, it's a test. Political competency and stability are precursors if the plan is to invest and grow long-term. That's it for this episode of Inside Asia. Sorry to end on such a sour note. Unfortunately, there's cause for concern. If you're not a regular listener, please subscribe wherever you download and listen to podcasts. There are over 130 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. As always, we thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.